Blog Talk Radio. Good day, everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again to the AJ Bruno Show. Today, my guest is John Carroll Lynch, a prolific actor who has appeared in so many great roles throughout his career. Hi, John. Happy belated birthday, and glad to have you on. Thank you. Good to be here. Sure. So, can you tell us about how you became so passionate about acting, and as someone who had also considered going to CUA, what made you pick it for studying theater? Uh, well, I started uh, acting in high school uh, for um, you know community theaters and basically any place I could get a stage. I I was fascinated with the idea of becoming somebody else. Uh, it was uh, it felt like a complete necessity at the time um, to be somebody else. So it seemed magical to me that you could go on stage and say you were somebody else, and then you would be somebody else for a couple of hours. That sounded pretty amazing. Um, so I did a bunch of plays in high school, and uh, my sister did as well. My brother uh, had a wonderful singing voice, and uh, he also did plays in high school and uh, in college. And um, my sister was already going to Catholic University, so um, they gave us money. You know, the, the sibling discount uh, was very instructive, very very important to uh, my going to Catholic University. I uh, actually auditioned for Carnegie Mellon, uh, but didn't go because I got in, but didn't go because it just was too expensive. And uh, wow. Catholic had such a strong reputation in theater at the time, and uh, and uh, I got a I got a very good liberal arts education there, so it was nice. Oh, it's a nice incentive too. So after mm-hmm. that, you then toured with a theater company for eight years. What was that experience like, and how did you make the leap from that to on-screen roles? Well, I only toured with uh, I, I only toured with the Guthrie for one year. Um, okay. It was uh, I, I joined the the regular company uh, after that first year, and I was there for eight years in Minneapolis. I worked on stage there in uh, rep. We did uh, you know two or three plays at a time and would rotate roles. It was a great way to learn how to act, and uh, especially when you had to be miscast, which was quite often. Um, I I, uh, uh, I I loved doing stage and uh, and started uh, auditioning for uh, you know commercials really really. I think you're breaking up here. It's what? Oh, sorry. Let me try no again. No problem. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I great. I was uh, I was. Uh, there was a place called Northwest Teleproductions, which was uh, uh, had the Pentagon contract for pu- uh, public service announcements for all the overseas bases, and it was all uh, produced out of Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul. So um, I auditioned for uh, commercials there uh, to start off, and uh, and then uh, there was a, a snow bait uh, rebate of um, uh, uh, for film production in Minnesota. And that's how I got going in, in films. Uh, uh, the Coen brothers came to town with uh, Fargo uh, and uh, they were looking for local actors and actually well, two thirds of the cast is local in that film. Um, so it was a really great break for me. I had, I had gone to New York the year before and decided to come back. And I, I guarantee you, I would not have been seen for that movie in, in New York but I was seen in Minneapolis for it. Well, good decision. Um, I was about to ask about Fargo, but 
Right, definitely. But first, I'm curious, I think your first credit was for Grumpy Old Men, which I think was just a hilarious movie. I'm curious, did you get to mingle at all with some of the legendary actors in that film? I had a wonderful time uh, sitting on a porch in the middle of the night uh, with M- Walter Matthau. Uh, and uh, uh, he was he was an incredible uh, uh, storyteller. So it was just a blast uh, doing that. And I also met Buck Henry and Kevin Pollack and uh, Anne Margaret. I didn't meet Jack Lemmon, uh, but everybody who met either Walter Matthau or Jack Lemmon on that movie w- was thrilled to be there, and Anne Margaret, but particularly those two men because they were on for so long on, uh, well, both movies, Grumpy and Grumpier. Um, but I, I just, I thought it was a terrifically fun film uh, to be around and to be in. And it was particularly helpful for me because I didn't have much to do, so I could learn a lot about the way in which a, a movie was made. That was helpful. Hmm. Great. So back to Fargo, which you just mentioned. So that's regarded as your real breakout role. Um, how did you come to be cast in that? And what was taking on, you know, your first really significant part like? Well, I, uh, I, as I say, I was in uh, Minneapolis and a friend of mine came into the dressing room uh, of a play we were doing at the Guthrie and said, there's this great, uh, script that the Coens are going to be shooting in town and I should audition for it uh, the part of Norm and uh, Fran's uh, husband, Francis McDormand's husband and uh, I uh, I read it and uh, I agreed I thought it was a great part for me and uh, I went in and read for the local casting director Jane Brody who gave me some tremendously good advice about acting on film as opposed to acting on uh, uh, on stage and uh and I took that to heart, and I went on to audition for John Lyons, who was the Cohen's casting director, and then on to meet Joel and Ethan um, uh, for the final audition for the part. And uh, in each circumstance, it just went went re- really, really well, and uh, as one hopes. And uh, a friend of ours who was in the company had known Fran since Yale, and uh, she knew that I got the part. Her, her name is Isabel Monk, and they were roommates out of Yale. And uh, she knew I had gotten the part the night before I knew. <laughs> so when uh, I got the call to, uh, that I was going to be doing that part, I went into a rehearsal, and Izzy was there. And she said, oh, I knew it last night. I just couldn't call you to tell you. That was pretty cool. That's great. And of course, now there's the Fargo TV show. So I'm curious, as you possibly playing a role in this TV series that have been discussed? Um, I met Noah Hawley uh, after they after he won his first Emmy for that, and uh, uh, it was a delightful meeting. He was he was uh, well well oiled by that time of the evening after that triumph, and uh, and we had a lovely chat. His his dream of of that show is continuing onward. Uh, he has a he has an ending in mind uh, for the show. Uh, I I don't know. I mean I, I'm pretty sure that I, I'm kind of out of the running for the television show, uh, as as it feels like it's uh, it jumps all around. I'm excited to I'm excited that they're having a fourth season. I'm very excited for everybody involved in that show. I've worked with a lot of people who've done that show, and uh, it's a nice place to work, which is always nice. It's a strange thing to see a movie that you made turned into a genre, mm-hmm. and turned into a you know uh, to see 
scenes you've done quoted by other actors is a very weird thing. And, uh, uh, and uh, I think the show does a tremendous job and has become its own animal. And he's a tremendous writer. I mean, I love his work. So, um, you know, I'm excited to see where they go next with Chris Rock. Yeah, that's heard about that. It should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So around that same time, uh, you started to get cast in some really major blockbusters. Uh, in the spring of 97, you were in two movies that I, I quite enjoyed. Uh, what can you tell us about the experience of playing a part in Volcano and Face Off? I uh, had uh, been in Minneapolis and left Minneapolis uh, in the fall uh, uh, of the year before that. And um, Fargo was coming out in February of that year, which it did. And I became, uh, I went from being somebody who was, you know, just beaten on doors to somebody who, had a, who, who was seen as a legitimate film actor, thanks to the Coens. And, uh, and uh, so doors started to open and the first of those was Volcano. I loved playing that part, Stan Olber, uh, Mick Jackson, who is the director I've worked most for in my career. I think I've worked for him four times. Um, he and I had a good working relationship on the film. And uh, 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 I, I, I suggested that uh, the character um, uh, be trying to quit smoking and not being very successful at it. Uh, not only was I smoking, smoking at the time, which was helpful to try to quit smoking, but also um, there was a director I'd worked for at the Guthrie who uh, named Lee Buchule, who uh, who uh, was like that. He had a patch on his neck and he was chewing Nicorette gum and then he would go outside on breaks and take take the gum out and the patch off and smoke a cigarette. So uh, I thought that was an interesting, I thought that was an interesting guy. So I wanted to, to play that and Mick was down with it. Um, Face Off, uh, I got cast in that movie just as uh, my wife and I were planning our wedding, and um, uh, we were told over and over again that it wasn't going to be a problem, that the dates that we had weren't going to be a problem, and they were, uh, of course. And so I had to make a decision whether to stay in that movie. Um, and uh, we got some wonderful advice from a friend of my wife's name, Ann Petoniak, who was in the original uh, Broadway cast of Night Mother with Kathy Bates. And, she was in uh, the movie I was making at the time, Thousand Acres, and she just said, listen, these people are not ogres. You'll start work, they'll see the work you do, and then they'll let you out. And that's exactly what happened. Um, not only did they let me out, but uh, uh, John, John, I came back to my trailer just before I left, and uh, John Liu had given me a set of china for our wedding present, which I thought was very sweet. Um, it was a fun movie to be in, with those actors, uh, particularly with Nick Cage, who I got to work with, and uh, with a bunch of other actors who've done quite well since then, uh, you know, Chris Bauer and uh, Alessandro Nivola, and um, it's been it's a, it wasn't Thomas Jane is in that movie. It's a, it's a, it's got a seminal cast. No, great cast and a great film. Mm-hmm. So at the at the same time, uh, you also had what probably became your signature television role uh, playing Steve Carey on the Drew Carey show. What was the experience like playing this character for so many seasons and then seeing you know that show at all? Well, uh, the Drew Carey show was a very much a going concern by the time I joined it. Um, it, had, it was in its third season and it was going quite well. Um, uh, 
it, it, it was a, a staple on ABC. And um, I got a call to do one episode of the show, and it was to play uh, Steve Carey, Drew's brother, and that it would be uh, that he would be a crossdresser. And both of those things made me laugh. I thought that was a funny idea. So um, uh, that was that was the first episode, and it went very very well. It was a it was a funny bit, and they wanted to write more for it. And I ended up doing two more episodes that season, and then uh, doing about I think ten or eleven episodes the following season. So by the fifth season, I was. Uh, what I called myself was an irregular. I was on about uh, uh, two-thirds of the shows uh, in a season, uh, and that was about the time that I, I married Mimi on the show. Um, it, it was a, it was a really great ride. I've I've been in a lot of funny uh, groups of a lot of funny people in my life, and that was a group of very very funny people: um, uh, Craig Ferguson and. Uh, Kathy Kenny and uh, Ryan and Diedrich, they were tremendously funny people. So it was really fun to be around. And, and Drew is a, an extraordinarily generous guy uh, and uh, a good boss. He was a good boss and he was a funny dude. So it was a nice, it was a really nice job. They were also very um, flexible. I got to do, I got to continue to do films when I got them and when I wanted to do them. So I was able to do other things, which was uh, tremendously generous of uh, Bruce Helford and uh, the rest of the writing staff, as well as uh, Drew, Drew himself. Oh, that's great. Uh, this is a show that I watched basically throughout its entire run when it was on the air, and I always thought it mm-hmm. was pretty funny to the point that you know, nowadays I feel like we don't have sitcoms like this really very often. Do you feel the same, or what do you make of that whole change that there seems to be? In? I, I, I'm I'm really concerned about comedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on television because uh, because oftentimes I wish comedies were funny and uh, right. there are funny ones on television but they're you know like I think Brooklyn Nine Nine for example is a really really funny show um, yeah. and um, I, I think there's a lot of things that are nominated every year for for um, comedies that don't, aren't funny I think they're tremendous shows they're very very good but I don't laugh watching them uh, <laughs> the Drew Carey show the whole intention. It, it did not require. Uh, it, it did not care about plot. It did not care about character to, per se. What it cared about was whether or not you laughed, and uh, um, I think that was a. I think that's one was its genuine gift was, um, was its silliness, and mm-hmm. um, I, I thought it was. I thought it was a zany, zany, fun show. There would be there were things that would make me laugh. Um, Every week on that show, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a hard thing to do, especially over so many episodes. No, no, you did a great job over the run, for sure. Yep. So, yep. You, you're um, you're technically the fourth Star Trek actor we've had on the show here. So naturally, I have to ask if you have any thoughts on having appeared on an episode of Voyager. Um, I was so excited, you know, I got this call. I, I'd been a long time, lifelong Star Trek fan. So I was so excited to the opportunity to go to go on uh, one of those shows. And um, I, uh, I was so excited, you know, I'm, and it's the gamma quadrant, you know, so it's going to be a forehead. I'm really excited about that. And then I get a call from the wardrobe supervisor saying, listen, we're a little thin on modern, you know, modern clothing. Do you have any suits you could bring in? And I was like, I'm so, 
well, you're playing you're playing a real estate developer on Earth in 1999. Have you gotten the script yet? I said, no, um, I have not. And of course, this was a time where they weren't emailing scripts; they were couriering. They they still had couriers driving around Los Angeles delivering scripts. So a little bit later that afternoon, I got a script, and uh, uh, sure enough, I was playing. Uh, it's the uh, it, I, it has the uh, it has the distinction of being the only Star Trek episode in any series, in any iteration of that concept that has absolutely no science fiction in it. Hmm. It is simply a flashback of uh, uh, Janeway's to her I think great great grandmother, who uh, worked on a, a real estate project and and. It was fun to be on the show, but I was a little disappointed I did not get a forehead. <laughs> I was really excited. I was really about excited about the idea of getting a forehead. That, that's what I was really I was really excited about. Um, still, it's it's funny how how people are passionate, so passionate over all these years about that show, and I continue to be. You know, I, I've I've enjoyed Star Trek Discovery and. I was uh, happy to uh, join the cast of One Dollar, uh, not the least of which is I think CBS All Access is putting together a nice lineup, and its uh, crown jewel at the moment is Star Trek Discovery, which is a really well done television show. Right. And in the past few days, they announced a new Captain Picard show, so maybe you'll play an alien on there. Who knows? I look forward to a forehead at some point. That's what I'm really, <laughs> I'm really gunning for. Forehead. That's funny. Nose, nose ridge and forehead. That's what I'm looking nose for. Nose ridge and forehead. So pretty much a Ferengi, I guess. I, 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 I'm way too big for a Ferengi, but maybe there's Ferengi. a Ferengi with a pituitary problem or something like that. Right. So uh, on that same note, I also talked to James Darren a few months ago, and you directed him and the, the great Harry Dean Stanton and Lucky. Uh, what was pivoting yeah. to the director's role like for that movie? Well, I I loved I loved that script and really felt that I could uh, help bring it to life. So I, I started. I had been trying to figure out something to direct for a while, and this one felt right. And um, uh, and uh, I had been a longtime fan, a lifelong fan of Harry Dean Stanton's, and I'd met him socially two or three times. Although I don't know that he would rem- would have remembered me. Uh, uh, and I I enjoyed his company a great deal. Uh, James Darren uh, came to the project fairly late, uh, but Iris Stephen Bear, who was the executive producer of Deep Space Nine, knew him, and uh, he was driving up to a meeting. We would go up to Harry Dean's every Saturday, every Sunday, to go through the script with Harry before uh, we started production. And uh, uh, he was on his way up there, and James Darren was broken down on Mulholland Boulevard. And we had we had just been looking for uh, that character uh, and uh, the one that James plays. And um, uh, man, it was so funny. Um, he pulls over. Iris sees him pulls over. And he goes, "What are you doing here?" And in his typical Jimmy Darren way, he goes, "I'm standing here waiting for a tow truck. What does it look like I'm doing?" <laughs> and uh, uh, he says, "Listen, I've got. I'm working on this project. It's with Harry Dean Stanton." I, I'm going over there now. I'm going to send. I'm going to email you the script, and I want you to meet the director. So he came over there and said, "I just saw James Darren." I said, "Oh, well. he goes. I'm thinking maybe he could play Polly." And I'm like, "That's a great idea." And he goes, "Well, uh, let's see if he likes it, and uh, we can have a meeting sometime this week." And I met him two days later, and he was in the movie three days later. Uh, so that was a great stroke of luck because 
he, his warmth and his, his presence in the movie as someone really in love, you know, uh, with Beth Grant's character made a huge difference in the way those bar scenes played. Harriet was, was absolutely crucial to the project. Obviously it was inspired by him. So um, if he wasn't going to do it, we weren't going to do the movie. And, um, and it was an amazing ride to help him with that part because it was so personal to him. The material it was taken. A lot of it was taken from his biography, his own, his autobiography. So, uh, you know, his own life. So he, uh, he got uh, very protective, which was interesting to watch because he's not a precious person at all. He got very vulnerable at times in the, when he realized, you know, during the course of the production, how much of the material would be assigned to someone else from now on, and this fictional character, Lucky. And uh, and there were a couple of times where he was really he really didn't want to uh, participate in those scenes, but uh, he made it through and he committed and and he was uh, absolutely extraordinary uh, in the film and so brave in every way, uh, physically and emotionally in that in that uh, movie. It was a real pleasure to uh, to um, uh, to build that uh, that film around him. Speaking of legend, you also worked with another legend, Clint Eastwood in, in Gran Torino, which was a really phenomenal movie. How was uh, working with him? I I enjoyed working with Clint uh, very much. And uh, I only had like, uh, I mean, I was scheduled for 10 days on the film and worked three because that's how Clint works. You know, he works very, very quickly. And um, right. um, part of the reason why he can get away with that is because he's, everybody's been working for him for 50 years. Uh, hmm. The woman who was cutting his hair had been cutting his hair since Rawhide. So uh, he was a a very loyal man, and he kept everybody working. Um, The person who was the director of photography, Tom Stern, on that film had been and continues to be his his, uh, director of photography, but he was originally a camera operator on Clint's earlier films, so people moved up. Uh, So everybody knew exactly which way the train was moving. And so that's why they are able to move so quickly uh, because they are just such a, uh, such a cohesive unit. Um, making a movie um, is the same thing as, as conducting warfare. You, uh, you create a schedule, you move people around, you feed them and clothe, clothe them and you shoot things. And, uh, and uh, Clint, Clint's got a really nice platoon over there. Um, working for him, he said this great thing to B. Vang at one point when uh, he was playing the young man in his first acting role, and uh, he was nervous. It was early on in the production, and he just said in his Clint way, you know, tell the truth, you'll be fine. Hmm. And, uh, I, you know, that's how he feels, and that's how he works. Yeah, good advice. So the movie that yeah. I think you were in, which had the most confusing ending, was Shutter Island. I'm curious, as someone who was part of that film, did they give you any insight into if there was a correct interpretation of how that movie really ended? <laughs> I think it's up to you how you, how to end it. And by the way, am I really a real person in that movie? Do I actually, do I actually <laughs> exist or do I actually exist or not? That's an interesting yeah. question. There's a lot of that in that movie. And uh, I think that there's a, a, I think it's intentionally, uh, he does so many things in the movie, Scorsese does, to mess with you mess with the audience's mind and with their perception of reality. And so much of the movie there's watching it. I was like, 
I'm not sure if what I'm seeing is real. There would be these great jump cuts that uh, uh, Thelma put in Thelma's Schumacher, and, and it would be just this, uh, you know, there's a glass of water on the table, and then it's not there. And uh, in another movie, that would be a, a, a that would be unintentional potentially, but everything was intentional. Uh, and uh, as far as w- what the end of the movie is, um, I think that the the question at the end of the movie, which is, would you rather you know, uh, live a monster or die a hero. Um, I think that's a really good indication of where the kind of knife ed- knife edge knife's edge decision is for the main character and is for the audience. How would they like to interpret that? Makes sense. So you've had roles in some big comedic movies as well, like uh, Crazy Stupid Love and Ted Two. How do you approach roles like this compared to some of the more serious acting you do? Uh, the building blocks are the same, just like music. Uh, you know, there's just, there's chords, there's, uh, you know, in music there's chords, there's, uh, there's rhythm, there's tempo, there's keys, you know, all those kinds of things. Same thing is true in acting, but the, the building blocks don't change. Uh, it's just the, uh, understanding the, uh, the key of the, of the, the tone of the film, you know, the tone of any individual scene. There are going to be individual scenes inside very dramatic material that are quite funny and vice versa, you know, very moving things inside uh, other material. I think there are, there are ones in Crazy Stupid Love where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Steve Carell. And part of the reason why is because he can be so funny and so moving in the same film with the same character. Um, he does that in that film. And uh, uh, the, the uh, two, John Requois and uh, Glenn Vicar, who are the directors uh, of that movie, are the, they are so funny. Uh, uh, I, I was coming onto the set once with, uh, John was sitting in the director's chair, one of the director's chairs, and he was just laughing to himself. And I said, what are you laughing about, man? And he goes, well, I've been thinking about this character that has one testicle, right? And, uh, and I was just thinking... Like he'd say stuff like, "Man, I'm freezing my ball off out here," or, "Or, uh, or are you busting my ball?" And uh, and I, and is it funnier that he knows he has one that everybody else has to, or is it funnier that he doesn't? I can't tell. I can't figure it out yet. And I thought that was just that's that's a perfect example of somebody who's finding something so amusing, and he'll figure it out and work it out, and it'll end up being useful and valuable to him for comedic effect. Um, when you're working with people like that, who have that sensibility, that kind of, that kind of sense of whimsy, and all, you know, when they're working, it, 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 it creates an atmosphere in which you want to participate in the humor of, of the, the event. The funny thing about making dramatic material is often they're the funnier sets because you have to be, you, um, you need a release from the darkness that you're working with. So there are times where, you know, people are, uh, can't keep a straight face in dramatic material because it's just, it's so, uh, they're putting so much of themselves on the line. They need a, they need an escape valve. Makes a lot of sense. So I saw the founder fairly recently, and it was interesting to see Mm. that story being brought to the screen. Uh, Were your character and his brother really treated this savagely in real life, or was a lot of it played up for dramatic effect? 
Uh, I mean, it, I guess it depends on your point of view. Um, it certainly, uh, the material was meticulously um, uh, researched. And um, the uh, McDonald's Corporation uh, was, the McDonald's Corporation had purchased every single book on the founding of McDonald's uh, so that the the film rights, so that a film like that would never be made. Hmm. They, uh, he, Ray Kroc put, um, when I was a kid, I would go into McDonald's and there would be a, a little um, plaque on the wall with, a, with an image of Ray Kroc saying the founder on it. Um, Ray Kroc intentionally erased um, Mac and Dick McDonald's contribution to the, to the corporation. Hmm. Uh, he did it meticulously. He did it, he did it with knowledge that he was doing it. Uh, he was not, he was under no illusions that he was doing it. He may have been under the impression that he did create McDonald's because he certainly, as the film attests, it was his, um, it was his, uh, uh business model and his willingness to be ruthless and his willingness to, um, uh, to choose, um, sometimes choose pennies over quality that uh, made McDonald's the, the massive real estate agent, or, you know, real estate holder and uh, restaurant it is today. So I don't think you can get around the success of, of his business model. Uh, but uh, Mac and Dick were, uh, you know, were extraordinarily successful men. Uh, and yet, in comparison to Mr. Kroc, they're seen as failures. And then I think that's one of the part, reasons why I like that movie so much, is because John Hancock uh, allows you to question what success looks like. Um, they, they were very successful local businessmen. They both ended up being millionaires in, in the 60s, which was certainly quite a bit of money then. You know, a millionaire in cash, not in real estate, not in anything else. Right. But in comparison to the juggernaut and the, the money-making machine that he created, it's impossible to conceive of, uh, of success uh, in a different way. And I think that that's where we are now, too. You know, the, the uh, Bill Gates of the world, the Zuckerbergs and the Bezoses of the world are so gargantuanly successful in a, in a way that is inconceivable that I think it does away with um, what I think what success used to look like when I was a kid, which was yeah. succeeding at a chosen field that you love, making a living, being able to have a house, raising your kids and sending them to good schools because you were able to do that. That is, that's, that's seen now as not even remotely successful. And I think that's a false that's a false description of success. That makes sense. I mean, on that note, in the past, um, you know, maybe two generations ago, I think that uh, it was probably a lot better for more people overall, just in terms of the economic situation. And nowadays, it's a lot more top heavy, which seems crazy. Well, it's it's and uh, the question is, how do you fix it? You know, what's what yeah. what what exactly can you do to create? Um, what, what exactly can you do to create and foster uh, the downward movement of capital? And uh, that's a really tricky question because that makes us question 
the the engine that has pulled uh, the world uh, to where it is now. I mean, you know, um, even the most uh, what what used to be in my childhood the most uh, you know communist nations are now the most rapaciously capitalist nations in the world. Capitalism hmm. has won. It's without a doubt it has won all over the world. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, market-driven capitalism or whether it's government-driven capitalism. Both are using capitalist system economics. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how we create a circumstance where that, that, um, that amazing engine doesn't pull us straight off a cliff. <laughs> now, <laughs> I don't know how it's going to happen. But, uh, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, it has created, capitalism has created the opportunity for wealth in places where it never was before. The question is, how do you, how do you pull everybody along? And I don't, I don't know that I know the answer to that, but I know it's a question we have to answer. No, I agree. Well, you also played a, uh, a British businessman, actually, in, in turn. Um, and I, yeah. thought you were one of the, <laughs> I thought you were one of the highlights of that at first. I wasn't sure it was you Thank because you. the accent was so convincing. Um, this was such a, a different sort of role for you. What can you tell us about your run on this series? I loved um, working on that show because I thought the show was so smart and interesting. And also, I, it, there's sometimes you get to say things um, as characters that you fall in love with saying, and there was quite a few in there. Um, um, you know, um, and I can't remember the lines because they were so poetically driven, but they were beautiful about power and about the press and the relationship of those and what, what the responsibilities of each, each of those, uh, those, um, uh, you know, individual camps, what their responsibilities are. And it, it dances around truth, you know, what, what is truthful and what is hyperbole and how do we know the difference? And uh, I really loved doing that. I also loved doing, you know, frankly, I mean, as an actor, it was a delight to wear those clothes and that wig and, and use that accent. I, it's an, it was an opportunity <laughs> to transform. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've been doing British accents since I was, you know, since I watched every Monty Python episode uh, on our local PBS station about 82 times each. So uh, I, 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 it was a blast to be able to, uh, trot that out as an American actor, you don't get to do uh, accent work, uh, especially British accent work very much because British actors do their own accent work. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> you hire Brits for that. So, um, so um, it was a blast to do. And I, I, I very much enjoyed, I very much enjoyed the flamboyance of the character. And, uh, and at the end, um, the scene at the end of the series with Washington and uh, with him at the end was a was a really powerful scene and uh, one that showed how uh, power and that that power doesn't have to be vindictive that power can be merciful and in some ways mercy and forgiveness are ways in which people change whereas I don't think vindictiveness changes anybody I think it just hardens the circumstances. No. Um, I was just thinking about that scene too. That was a, a great one for sure. And I especially appreciate the irony. You have all these British actors that will play American roles with American accents. So to see it done the opposite is always interesting. It's always fun. You know, you, you know, there's, there's people who do it really, really well. You know, I think Gwyneth Paltrow's British accent is excellent. I think Renee Zellweger's is great. They've had an opportunity to do those and it was fun to, uh, to be able to, to do that on the set. And it was fun to work with, uh, Brits on the set because there were quite a few 
who wondered where in Britain I was from, because when I'm doing an accent, <laughs> Uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, when I'm doing an accent role, I start doing the accent from the makeup chair till the wrap, because if I don't, um, if I go in and out, uh, I'll lose it. Wow. So I try to be as focused on it now. I'm doing an ep- I'm doing this, this, uh, television show I'm doing now, $1, which premieres August 30th, that show I have an accent in. It's a, it's a Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh accent. It's, it's called a Yinzer accent. And it's really tricky, and um, uh, and uh, because it's a kind of a really like the rivers here, uh, there are several accents that come together to make a Pittsburgh accent. So it's a it's a delight a delightful challenge, but uh, it's challenging, man. It's a, it can a lot of times it's a headache because you've got to go wait. I've got to really restructure this line so it's so it's in the accent. Wow. Oh, I was about to ask you about that and your other upcoming projects. Before that final question, I'm curious. You've appeared in so many fantastic projects. Uh, we obviously couldn't get to all of them. Um, is there one that really stands out for you looking back as the one you most enjoyed or are most proud of? You know, pride's a tricky word because I, I think that pride denotes something more more like ownership of things, and I'm not a believer of that kind of um, but it's such a collaborative art form. I, uh, Alan Arkin said it best. It's a, you know, this is a team sport, and uh, and everything I do is uh, has reflections of the other people's contributions in it. Uh, in some ways, other people play your character for you because of the way they respond, and you do the same for them. So, so it's a it's an important um, you know, uh, it's it's a team sport that way. But. Um, you know, I'm extraordinarily, um, I'm extraordinarily grateful to have worked with so many great uh, directors. And um, obviously, um, one you didn't mention, which is, I think, a, a film that's underrated, uh, is Zodiac. I think that film is underrated, and I think uh, Fincher's work is perfect in that movie. And uh, it was one of the best working experiences I've had. Even though it was quite short, I, I got to sit with um, uh, you know Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards and Elias Kateas, uh and the other actor in that scene is Marty Lodge, and the, and the five of us did that scene, and we worked on that scene for you know a day and a half or so, and by the end of it, uh, we all got up and were like, wow, that was really cool, you know, that was a really exciting day, and and day and a half, and all of us were like, we could just keep doing this scene because it was so much fun. And even a year later, when we were all at the uh, Shutter Island premiere, because three of us were in that film, um, it, we were standing around having a cocktail at the at the premiere party and going, just there was a kind of a lull. And then somebody said, man, that day was fun. Those days were fun. We got to figure out something to do together because it was just such a blast to work with those guys. And they were so subtle. They they changed every every single nuance in the scene adjusted and and Fincher was so excellent in terms of how he noted the scene that it was so much fun to play so and with David Fincher you get to do it 30 40 50 times so you know hmm. you get you get your you certainly get your reps in no that helps I, I would have mentioned yeah. Zodiac but I haven't seen it yet I did hear it's a good movie though so definitely on the radar it's a very good film yeah it's a very yeah. good film so and I appreciate that you you uh you only mention things that you've actually seen I like that I see. I like to not pretend I've seen something, so I'm trying to <laughs> stick to that. So good for um, you. 
Yeah, yeah. But I have I've seen a lot of where you've been in because you've been in so many great projects, and you know it's quite a resume. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And finally, I know you mentioned a movie you have coming out. Uh, I'm sorry, a TV show, but you also have a movie with a lot of great actors called The Highwaymen. So, what can you tell us about these yeah. and any other things you have on the pipeline now? Um, well, those uh, um, the uh, uh, one dollar is a is a show where you learn about a, uh, the community. You learn about the story by following a single dollar bill through the community. Um, this community, the first season is a is a Western Pennsylvania steel mill town, and um, uh, so much of television today is about world. They make worlds like Westworld or Game of Thrones or uh, Handmaid's Tale, where they create fully realized uh, fictions that are so that have so much, um, uh, you know, they feel so real. And what I am so excited about with $1 is that we have a world and it turns out to be ours and it's as fully realized and as subtle and as, as huge in terms of the ramifications for each individual, both in terms of the story of this show, but also in the way it reflects our society. I, mean, I think it's an exciting, dramatic interesting uh, story with an interesting point of view because every single episode changes depending on who the do- who's holding this individual dollar. Um, so that's an exciting thing. Uh, and The Highwaymen was my second opportunity to work with John Lee Hancock, who I'd worked with on The Founder. I got to act with Kathy Bates, who, which, which was a joy. I'd been around her. I'd known her for a long time in various projects like American Horror Story, but I'd never gotten a chance to work with her, and that was really fun. And Kim Dickens was another person who I just adore, who I worked with. And Kevin Costner was everything you'd imagine. He was so smart about his business. And, and so, um, you know, he's, he, he really is a, a, is a force to be around. And, uh, and John is a, a great director, I think. So the, the movie is about uh, the hunt for Bonnie and Clyde. Um, Woody Harrelson and, uh, and Kevin Costner play the two uh, uh, former Texas Rangers who were hired after their retirement to find Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, after, you know, three years of Bonnie and Clyde running around uh, the, the South and Southwest um, killing people, um, they ended in about 60 days. And it's how they do it that's the story of the, sh- of the movie. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be an amazing film. Well. Well, I'm going to keep an eye out for both of those, and they both sound great. So. Great. Thank well, you. Well, once again, it was uh, fantastic having you on, and um, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. You as well. So that was John Carroll Lynch. Really, really impressive resume he has there. Tried to get to a lot of the good stuff. We missed a lot, too, as well. So we'll be back next week again for another episode uh, to be announced. We're finalizing that now. If you haven't done so already, please do follow the Twitter account. It's just at Reagan Worldwide, at Reagan Worldwide. You can get information about the show and any other fun thoughts that might be on there. So until next, then A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show, and I'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.